Occhio destro dominante. Right eye dominant. Rechtes Auge dominant. Right eye dominant. Höhere Eye dominant. Right eye dominant. Allein der Jungen in Muhaimina Right eye dominant. This is the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I am your host, Nick Toro, Jr. For today's episode, I'd like to focus on the work of photographer Arthur Tress. And if that name is not familiar to you, you're not alone. I just stumbled upon the work of Arthur Tress recently, and I was surprised to see that he's been an active photographer since the late 1960s. And the work that I discovered of his was work that he produced during that time. And I was really blown away because, well, for a number of reasons, one of which just the level of quality in the work was just astounding, but also the fact that I had never heard of Arthur or his work, and I pride myself on being up on my photo history. It was just a, a you know, a reason why I wanted to, to explore Arthur and his work further and focus on him for today's episode. So during my research, I discovered that there is currently a retrospective of Arthur Tress photography on view at the Getty Center in Los Angeles. So I reached out to the photo curator of that exhibit, and he is my guest for the show today. His name is Jim Gans, who has a very close relationship with Arthur Tress, who is still alive and is still making photographs to this day. And so he was a great person to discuss uh, this specific body of work that's on view, but just in a general sense, uh, more about Arthur his work and his life. And what I found really interesting is that if when I looked at the work of Arthur Tress, I could see elements of his contemporaries, uh, such as Dwayne Michaels, Diane Arbus, Lee Friedlander, uh, just sort of permeates into his work. However, Arthur definitely has a unique perspective all his own. And now I just consider him sort of an under-the-radar, undiscovered master that at least I didn't really know about. So I'm excited to have this conversation and share it with you today. Uh, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Jim Gans, all about the work of Arthur Tress. Thanks for joining me today. Jim Gans, welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. Uh, I'm glad you uh, could join me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So, Jim, before we get into um, the topic of Arthur Tress specifically and and the show that you have at the Getty, I was wondering if you could just give the listeners uh, some background information about who you are and a little bit about your career, and then... Maybe we could bridge that with some discussion of how you first came to the work of Arthur Tress. Well, um, I have been in the field of graphic arts for quite a long time. Um, I started out more broadly working in, with prints, drawings, and photographs in my, in my earlier career. 
um, primarily at the, starting at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, but then at the Clark Art Institute in the Berkshires, where I spent about 12 years and started the photography collection, which there was uh, primarily early photography, 19th century photography. Hmm. I moved on to the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco in uh, 2008 and spent a wonderful 10 years there in the Achenbach Foundation for Graphic Arts. And pretty early on in my San Francisco, my time in San Francisco, I was introduced to Arthur Tress, um, who was uh, living in San Francisco at the time and who'd had this long career. And I mean, I I had heard of Arthur. I, I was somewhat familiar with his work, particularly uh, the Dream Collector, which is which is probably his best known work. It's a photo book in the early seventies, but I really didn't have any sense of of who he was or what his career was about. Um, and in a way, and I was thinking about this just this morning uh, as I was kind of thinking about our conversation today. You know, in a way, it was Arthur's older sister Madeline who really determined all of this because Madeline Tress. Um, was an insurance executive. She worked for the Fireman's Fund in San Francisco. Because Madeline was in San Francisco, Arthur spent one summer there and he created a lot of photographs. So when I, shortly after I arrived at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, I was introduced to Arthur and he was in the process of you know, kind of cleaning out his his sister's house. He actually had moved into his sister's house. Um, and one of the things he found was a bunch of prints from his 19 from his San Francisco stay in the in 1964. So a mutual friend and colleague, uh, a guy named Mark Garrett, who was then the matter framer and also a very excellent artist. I'm working in the Achenbach. He knew Arthur and he said, you know, I know Arthur Tress and he made these photographs of San Francisco in 1964 and they're really cool. You should take a look at it. Um, and nobody's really seen them. Nobody really knows about this work. And I have to say, you know, when you're a curator and you hear a story about, oh, there's this work and nobody's seen it, you know, 99% of the time, there's a very good reason why nobody has seen it. <laughs> but I said, okay, sure, I'll take a look at it. So I, you know, Arthur came in and I started looking at this work and I was just kind of blown away by it. I thought it was amazing. So pretty much on the spot, I decided, well, I would love to show this at the De Young. And so we put that show together and I think it was in 2010, we did the exhibition. We published a catalog, um, Arthur Tress, San Francisco, 1964. Mm. and the show was very well received and it was fantastic. And I absolutely loved that project. So, so really, you know, that would not have happened were it not for Madeline having lived in San Francisco. To continue the saga, after I did that show with Arthur, I, you know, I continued to spend time with him. And what I would do is I would go over to his house where he had his whole archive at that time, um, including all of his boxes of contact sheets. And this is a guy who, you know, continues to work today. I mean, he's created God knows how many hundreds of thousands of, of photographs and he keeps everything like a pack rat. 
So he had all of these boxes of contact sheets. And I was really, you know, I was really interested in that early work that he had been doing in the 60s. So he would give me a box of contact sheets and I would take it home. And and again, this was on my own time. So, you know, the registrars at the Fine Arts Museums, <laughs> they didn't know what was going on. It was not, this was my <laughs> personal project. Personal. Yeah, yeah. I'd go through the contact sheets. I would, you know, with my magnifying glass, I would find interesting images. I would flag them. Then I would bring it back to Arthur. He would scan those. And the process continued. And this went on for, I don't know, at least a couple of years. And what I what I was planning to do was a book. I wanted to do a, a book about Arthur's early work. So I was focusing on that period of sort of mid to late 60s. So the one thing Arthur said to me was, just stay away from the dream collector, Jim, because the Getty Museum has acquired um, a large collection of that work and they're going to do an exhibition. And I said, oh yeah, fine, no problem. I mean, I'm, I was so interested in his like open space in the inner city and some of the other work. I was fine, like not dealing with dream collector, you know, and then as luck would have it, um, the, the job opened up at the Getty and I found myself going to work at the Getty, which had not actually organized that show. And so there was this body of work and I realized, okay, now I'm in a new institution. I can, I can now do uh, this, not just as a book, but as an exhibition. Mm. So yeah, so kind of, it all sort of connects up. It seems like it's, it's, it's sort of a confluence, obviously, of, of sort of different things happening that you are sort of navigating. You, it's almost like you're, you were in some ways a connective tissue to a lot of uh, how this all came together. But um, the, when you, the, the, the San Francisco work, um, were you sort of like, were there other people aware of this interested in it? Or were you kind of like, you know, this was just sort of your oh. thing that, that, you know, you knew about. It it was, it was not well known at all. I mean, I, I mean, I would say, you know, Arthur Tress, um, has been the subject of of a number of books and even a number of exhibitions. Um, the Corcoran Gallery did a, a sort of mid-career retrospective and published a catalog um, some years ago now. And and I think, you know, a, a couple of these San Francisco images will turn up in, in some of these volumes. But um, yeah, yeah, nobody really, nobody knew about this stuff. And it was a real discovery, I think. Well, and and just the fact that, you know, like what what's what's I think an interesting aspect of it for me is you're dealing with. It's not like you stumbled upon an archive of somebody who's no longer alive, or or you know you're 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 having you know direct interaction with the artist. Um, you're getting his actual contact sheet. To me, like t- you know, like having someone's contact sheets in, in, in your hands and to be able to just be privy to that, like really deep uh, process of, of seeing like every frame from every role. Um, it, that kind of access to me just seems really, that, that's, uh, um, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's, it's uh, such a unique opportunity, I guess um, that, that, and he trusted you with that too, which uh, I, I find really, 
um, that's an interesting point as well. Because knowing uh, as a photographer myself, like what you're willing to show and not show, uh, that's very yeah. revealing, I guess. Well, Arthur, Arthur has been extremely generous and accommodating and open. I mean, his his story, at least to me, was a was a was a completely open book, and he was happy to share anything I I wanted or needed. Also, Arthur has a mind like a steel trap. He he seems to remember everything. You can show him almost any photograph he ever took, and he seems to remember, you know, the circumstances around. But it's it's quite wonderful. So, you know, during the pandemic, I would have a regular Zoom conversation with him. I think it was every two weeks. We would we would get on Zoom. He's in San Francisco. I'm in LA, and I would interview him. And we we and because we of the of how long the pandemic lasted, you know, it was quite a luxurious series of conversations where I would show him images or pull books out and hold them up to the screen and ask him questions. I recorded all of those conversations and got them transcribed. Um, and it was really fantastic. But I, I will admit, though, to one kind of big goof up that there is really entirely my own fault. If you If you open the San Francisco 1964 book, the first thing you see inside the the book sort of opposite the i don't know opposite the title page is a reproduction of a letter on fireman's fund stationery it was it was um, maddie's stationery when she was working there and when arthur visited her in 1964 he he typed a letter to his parents uh, or actually to his dad and his brother david back in new york using her letterhead and on her typewriter and it's it's really a charming letter. You know, he sort of talks about how he's finding San Francisco and what the weather is like and how bizarre it all is. Um, and so we just reproduced that letter right in the front of the book. So jump ahead to this current project. Um, I never asked Arthur for some reason, hey, Arthur, do you have any, by any chance, do you have any letters from this later period that I'm now looking at, because that would be really interesting to see. So what happened was, um, in addition to interviewing Arthur during the pandemic, I would give him little homework assignments. I would say, Arthur, can you write up, um, write, tell me about this photograph. So we kind of went through the Dream Collector and some of the other sort of key images. And Arthur would send me these long multi-part emails with where he'd pasted in all kinds of images and comparisons. And Arthur writes in a, in a kind of, you know, he doesn't use punctuation or capitalization. It's just like the stream of consciousness with all these images. I mean, it's kind of incredible. So he, he sent me tons and tons of those things. And then at some point, very late in this process, when we were just starting to write, it was just about time to start writing the catalog. Arthur sent me one of one of you know 10 million emails and attached a letter from I don't remember which letter it was, but it was a letter from this period from like around 1970. And I looked at it and I was just kind of stunned because it was an amazing letter. So I I responded immediately. I said, Arthur, what's this letter? And he said, Oh, he said, Oh, I sent you uh I sent you a bunch of scans of those letters on a 
on a jump drive, you know, a, a while ago. So Arthur also has a habit of sending jump drives with, you know, 8,000 uh, files on with no names that are meaningful, with a mix of images and God knows what, and all sorts of duplicates and triplicates. So he, in fact, he had sent me at some point a, a jump drive that had a bunch of scanned letters. I said, listen, Arthur, can you just get me the letters on a, in a Dropbox or something? So he did that pretty quickly. And then and then I realized, oh my God, you know, he is sitting on a treasure trove of primary source documents that I that I could have had for years, but I, I just didn't know he had them and we just hadn't talked about it. Mm. Um, so, you know, Arthur, when he was traveling around the world, was writing lots of letters to his dad, you know, who was bankrolling him and to his brother and sister. And then um, Arthur spent almost two years living in Stockholm before landing back in New York in 1968. And he had his first serious boyfriend there, a, um, a, a young acting student named uh, Toby Astner. Um, and Arthur and Toby didn't live in Stockholm. He lived in Skara. And so they wrote letters to each other even while he was living in, in Sweden. And then when he moved to New York, he wrote Toby lots of letters from New York. So what happened was years later, when Arthur was putting his archive together, he he got all of the letters that he had sent out mm. to people. He he retrieved them, mm -hmm. and it was easy enough to get the letters back from his family members. But he and Toby had fallen out of touch, you know, decades and decades ago. So, but there was an architect, a Swedish architect, who collected his work, and at some point, Arthur asked this person, you know, do you think you could track down this? man named Toby Astner. He he's was an actor. Um and so indeed he was he he got back in touch with Toby after after many, many years. And Arthur said, you know, I I, I asked Toby, do you what about all those letters that I sent you um all those years ago? Do you do you have those letters? And Toby says, Arthur, I kept all of your letters. So Arthur got all of the letters back. I said, Arthur, what about all the letters um, that Toby sent to you? Arthur said, ah, I threw all of those away. <laughs> he said, he said, that was a problem. He was the romantic one. Yeah. <laughs> but so really late in the game, I, I got this huge cache of letters. And and then Arthur found even more, you know, then the letters start, the, the floodgates opened. Mm. So I had hundreds of letters, many of them multi-pages. Uh, most of them not dated or or some of them, you know, it was, was kind of hard to kind of go through them and piece it all together. But it became an extremely important source of information because in these letters from the late 60s and early 70s, he's, you know, some of it is personal stuff, but a lot of it is, you know, this is the work I'm doing. This is what I'm trying to do. These are my frustrations. So it it just, I felt like I really, even though I knew Arthur so well, those letters allowed me to really get to know young Arthur in a way that I didn't before that. So I, I used those pretty extensively in the essays that I wrote in this book that we did. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, because that's, it's almost like the, the sort of the, the backdrop of, you know, if you're looking at the photos and knowing where yeah. he was, what he was feeling, what was going on in his life at, at that time. And to, again, to, to, to have that direct access to it, it's not, you know, 
you're not sort of like a sleuth after the fact uh is just um yeah it's to me that's such a gift to be able to to get it firsthand um let me ask you a little bit uh let's talk about the show um because the and and some of the work in the show um because and this is one of the things that I found really fascinating once I started looking at the work. Um, first of all, the, just the, the, not only the quality, the, sort of the aesthetic quality of it, a consistent uh, viewpoint, I'd say, uh, was apparent right away. But it was also really interesting to see his work for the first time against the backdrop of who else was creating work or who was known at the time. And, and, and the fact that it was, you know, like I, the the shadow work that, that makes me think of Lee Friedlander. There's reference, visual reference to Diane Arbus perhaps. And, and not that it's none of these things are necessarily intentional, but it's like, or Jerry Yulesman, even this sort of dream collector thing. But um seeing it uh sort of independent of those times knowing that he was doing this around the same time um to me it was it that's what struck me it's like the sort of the the importance of this this his vision when thrown against that backdrop of what other people were doing and that that really uh when you sent me the catalog, I was just like, like one page after another of just like these images that, um, I was like, why is it? I mean, I know he's got, he's got a show at the Getty. It's, he's not unknown. I mean, but like this, this is like, uh, this guy to me visually is, is on par with much bigger names from that. Certainly from that time. I, I, of course, I agree with you, Nick, and I have been so excited for so many years. I have been in such a state of anticipation of of getting this show on view and getting this book out, because anytime I, sh- I would share, I had this PowerPoint of all these images that I was sort of playing around with for years. Many of them have ended up in the show. Um and I would, you know, I would share that with with various people, with photographers, with curators, with, you know, knowledgeable people. And the reaction I got was always people were just amazed at the quality of it. And and, you know, the, the kind of, I don't know, singularity of his vision, even though, yeah, you, you make some certainly appropriate comparisons, but he's he's in this um, playing field of of names of people who are extremely talented and who are much better known than he is. Um, and the work really holds up. It really stands up. So I've just been, I've spent years, you know, waiting to be able to share this. And I've, I've already taken lots of people through the show, including, you know, lots of, again, like very knowledgeable people, collectors, dealers, people who were even around back then, and I keep hearing the same thing, which is, wow, we really had no idea. Like every, like, wow, you know, you just go through the show and every photograph is just, you, you can't believe it. And so it's, it's really gratifying. And I'm so, 
um, I'm so happy that Arthur's getting getting some attention here because, you know, he he really, despite my efforts, <laughs> um, and and the efforts of a, just a few other people, um, he's he's not really on the radar the way I think he should be. Now, I mean, I made the decision early on that I, I mean, I could have done anything with Arthur. I could have done a full retrospective, but I really wanted to focus on his first ten years in New York. So, mm-hmm. and these are the years when he's creating, you know, the Dream Collector, Theater of the Mind, Shadow, Open Space in the Inner City. From to me, these are seminal works um, that you know should be better known. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, well, let me let me ask you about that. So, um, uh, why why do you think he has been under the radar? Yeah, yeah. That's well. That's a good question. Um, well, first of all, I mean, he definitely was in in a kind of category of photographers at that time who were somewhat out of step with the mainstream. I mean, you know, he starts out doing a kind of social documentary photography in a, in a kind of self-conscious FSA style. And he's actually really quite good at that. Those photographs are great too. And sometimes you, you see hints of what's going to come. Is that the Appalachia project? Yeah which is the first project that we include in the show. Well, we really start with the Ramble and Appalachia. In terms of the chronology, those are the first two projects that he's doing when he settles back in New York in 68. Um, so, you know, he he's definitely not, you know, part of the, you know, the John Sharkovsky tribe. Mm-hmm. And But there are people, there's Dwayne Michaels who... You know, he gets to know early on and really looks up to. And Dwayne, you know, is is slightly older. Dwayne is now ninety one. Arthur's eighty three. So slightly older. Dwayne had a, had a bit more success and was showing his work in galleries. And and Arthur, you know, got to know him a bit. Um, but you know, App- Appalachia was was the breakthrough for Arthur, and it's really interesting how that came about. He, um, you know, when he was in Europe and when he was in Sweden, he was doing a lot of work for educational companies. He was making film strips, Mm -hmm. educational film strips for a Swedish uh, firm and on different topics like, you know, drug use, teenage drug use in in Sweden. Um, He went to Africa and he, he made a number of film strips relating to different cultures in Africa. And so when he gets to New York, he starts making the rounds to meet, you know, the dealers, the the gallerists, the curators. And he goes up to Eastman House and meets with Nathan Lyons. And at that time, Nathan's wife, Joan Lyons, was working as a designer on a project for the Rochester school system. Hmm. And so I'm sure the conversation, you know, Arthur would have talked about this all of this educational work he had done so the next thing you know he gets a commission to go to appalachia to shoot um craftspeople and folk musicians for a traveling exhibit that's being organized around the rochester public school system hmm. and that work 
um, ends up being shown at the Sierra Club Gallery in New York. And Alan Coleman, A.D. Coleman, who's writing, you know, for the Village Voice, reviews that show. And he he gives it a rave review. And he, he even says, you know, Arthur's Tress, th- there are echoes of the FSA people, but he's definitely his own his own man. So A.D. Coleman is, a, is an early um, admirer and advocate of Arthur and reviews the, the shows that he does. He also reviews Open Space in the Inner City and eventually writes um, a little essay for Arthur for his Theater of the Mind book. Mm. Coleman's um, one of Coleman's most important essays of the 70s is this this one about the directorial mode in photography, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is in Art Forum 1976. And, you know, Arthur is featured in that article and his work is reproduced in it. So it's not that, you know, it's not that Arthur was unknown. He he everybody knew him and he was getting reviews and write ups. But the thing about Arthur is I, I think there are two things. I think there are two reasons why people don't know Arthur is um, he's kind of his own worst enemy in some ways in the sense that he's he's extremely creative and he he likes to he doesn't like to repeat himself so you know the work that i show in this exhibition is fairly consistent but then right after this he starts working in color um you know in, in fact if you look at his career he's he's worked in every genre from you know like children's books to you know, uh, gay porn. I mean, he's done it all. Mm-hmm. So I think collectors, curators, photo people, they they find him really hard to pin down. Like, well, who is this person? Because he keeps changing. He keeps doing different kind of work. He's doing abstractions. He was doing, you know, he was, he was breaking into a hospital on Roosevelt Island and creating installations, which he paint, he painted the walls and photographed i mean he's he's done like every kind of crazy thing and so i think number one he's just when an artist just keeps changing their their subject and and their style and and, and their working method um people find them kind of hard to hard to understand yeah and and then the other thing is arthur can be quite pushy i mean you know he's a, he's a self promoter he's a shameless self promoter and he's he's definitely a, can be kind of in your face. And if you're a curator, you know, usually the people that are like that are the people that are not talented. Yeah, yeah. So I think he's, you know, maybe he's rubbed some people the wrong way who find him a little bit too pushy or whatever. But you've got you've to look past that and realize, wait a minute, there's actually something there. Like, this guy is really amazing. Yeah, yeah. And... <clears throat> Well, and and so a couple of things come to mind. So one of which is that as an audience member, as a viewer, as somebody interested in the medium, the, that part of it to me is in like, I'm going to look at the work. I'm going to respond to the strength of, of that work and the, 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 the personal behavior or anything that's that's independent of that but i do see your point as far as uh you know 
and 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 maybe it's also a testament that he's so prolific and it continues to make work and has it, you know shows that he's a curious creative person that is exploring every possible sort of way to 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 make the work whereas whether it's somebody who's and I'll use like Vivian Meyer as you know whatever yeah. like like oh I stumbled upon this 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 body of work that nobody knew about she's long gone yeah. it was created with no attention paid to it but it has sort of like all right there's value there but there's also like well you know it's it's and this isn't a knock on it but it's there's a one dimensionality to it I, I guess where it's, where it's easier to say from a collector standpoint or, you know, like show like here's this person, this is what the work looks like. You may, you say the name and you know what you're going to get. Uh, mm -hmm. I think, or, or like the Arbus reference that I made earlier. Um, clearly she, she, uh, didn't have a very long career. She, and, and so that's sort of like a finite amount of work and that everyone, and maybe even that lends, obviously it's, it's, value because it's rare and and there's only so much of it um and and the what what I, what I appreciate in us having this conversation is that from a curatorial standpoint or you know a a uh, a museum showing work as opposed to you know obviously there's there's you know that's going to affect the value or the interest in his work but it's an educational opportunity for someone like me who, you know, uh, doesn't know a lot about this artist and it's, and, and the fact that um, I keep going back to this idea of that it's not posthumous. It's, it's, which um, there's so many sort of figures in the history of photography that I guess were just sort of like, you know, maybe undiscovered gems, but it's so many years later that I, I think it's 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 at least he's he's around to enjoy yeah. the recognition. Yes, and you know, of course, I think those of us who are close to Arthur were always a bit nervous, like because you know this is a long process. It's taken, I don't know, you know, it's taken like four years to get this show up, and I started working with this material probably you know ten plus years ago before I even knew what form it was going to take. And then of course we had the pandemic, which resulted in the show getting postponed. It, it got moved around a lot. And, um, and then, you know, I was always a bit nervous. I hope Arthur's still around when this, when yeah. this happens. And Arthur himself was like super cautious about, you know, COVID and stuff. He's like, cause I, I want to be there for that opening. And he was here. Yeah. The signing books and he was really it was it was fantastic i did a a conversation with arthur which is on the gettys youtube channel so you can see that that was just a couple days after the opening and there's a filmmaker in san francisco named stephen lewis who's done a, a new documentary about arthur that he's filmed over the last few years um that we are we are having the world premiere actually this weekend uh i realize our conversation is going to air after that afterwards already. yeah yeah um but there's a new film that's quite good um and hopefully gets some kind of distribution right it's an excellent film steven's a talented filmmaker and it really is a, a great portrait of arthur 
as he is now as a, you know, as a octogenarian who, you know, gets up every day and goes for a swim and photographs every single day of the week. Um, and it's just completely sharp and lucid. So, um, yeah, it was just fantastic being able to do this with Arthur still, you know, still with us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's interesting actually in this, not necessarily have to be part of our episode, but, um, I had a connection with Larry Fink when I was in in college. I, I was living in New Jersey at the time and he actually through that connection came out to my school and did presentation and a portfolio review. So fast forward, I'm doing this podcast and uh, re- I reconnected with him and we went back and forth trying to nail down a, a time for an interview and yep. it just didn't, didn't happen. And it's just, and they, there was, I don't know if he was, uh, I knew that he had some issues with dementia, but I, I didn't know, and I still don't know if he was, um, like if there was an awareness of that, you know, he had a short time left or, but the back and forth between us. And then when he, you know, it was just one of those things, just like what you said, you know, it's, it's your, and I think, um, being the age that I am and having grown up with sort of this, you know, the, these people, that generation is sort of my touchstone for yeah. my knowledge about photography and they they're 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 going you know oh yeah this is very much on on my mind i mean as we as we talked this week we've just lost elliot Irwitt. yeah and of course larry fink um and you know i think about these people of, of this generation there's still are, are quite a few of them around i mean Dwayne michaels is amazing you know yeah. he's 91 and um super sharp and making these amazing short films that he he puts on his website and i actually visited him in new york this earlier this year and he's he's just remarkable and i'm hoping and trying to organize a a virtual conversation between arthur and Dwayne. i hope will happen before the show while the show is still on view yeah and two of them to talk about these early years um, when they were close. You know, Dwayne wrote an essay about Arthur that appears in Theater of the Mind, which is one of my sort of touchstones. And we've got the original manuscript with Dwayne's, it's typed, but it's got all these hand corrections um, in the in the show, in a display case. Um, wow. had, it had turned up somewhere in, in Dwayne's archive and he had sent it to Arthur. So now Arthur has it. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah. I let's let's um I, I do want to hear a little bit like uh, you know, we don't have to talk about, you know, like the specifics of like, individual photos or you know, like we have been referring to different bodies of work that are represented in the show, but um as far as the the show that's now on display and the work that you have, um what uh w- I mean, I know I'm sure the response has been similar to what I've been feeling myself and not having been there in person, but what's, what's been resonating the most, do you think, as far as like what's on the walls there? Wow. Um, well, I, I do think that, you know, the, the open space in the inner city project, which was his most ambitious big project sort of 
in those in those early years and which takes up part of the first gallery and the entire second gallery is is really impressive and and that's work that is definitely not you know not very well known mm-hmm. I mean, there's incredible photographs there of people arthur um arthur makes portraits sort of street portraits and Lots of those photographs are of families and particularly kids, you know, young people, um, elementary school age and and teenagers. Arthur's an amazing photographer of young people. Yeah, absolutely. And I've just always been fascinated by that work, um, how he captures their their anxieties um, are often come through in those in those images. so um i i'm i'm noticing that people are spending a lot of time looking at that we've got one salon style wall devoted to his photographs of kids from the open space project open space in the inner city just to briefly explain yeah it's, it's about the lack of open space in the inner city it's about the fact that you know city dwellers and particularly young people have no place for recreation so arthur you know, traveled all around to the outer boroughs and um, and often photographed kids, you know, playing in bizarre places, you know, kind of surreal spaces, in fact. And that, you know, feeds directly into the dream collector. And all of these things are interconnected. You know, the photograph from Appalachia turns up in the dream collector. Photographs from open space in the inner city turn up in the dream collector it's it's all kind of connected that way the the dream collector photographs of course are are really striking and i think for today's audiences they're 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 also fascinated by the fact that here's a guy who's going around new york city photographing kids like yeah. you know who he just meets on the street mm-hmm. like you can't do that now no. like you know, times have changed and he's and he's often putting them in you know difficult situations. Now it's all play acting. I mean, he, you know, when you look at his contact sheets, you really get a sense of how he's acting with these young people. Um, you know, he's he's staging. These are staged pictures. This is Arthur in the directorial mode. Um, but they're also improvised. I mean, it's not. He'll he'll go out and just work with what he finds. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he'll have a prop. So there's a photograph pretty well known of a boy um, lying on the sidewalk with these like weird roots coming out of his sleeves. Yeah. The boy with root hands. And, you know, he what Arthur did is he, he bought these roots in the Korean grocery store near his apartment, Riverside Drive, walked into the park, not with any particular plan in mind. And he photographs the roots kind of as a still life. And then there are two kids playing and, you know, they end up playing around with these roots. And one of the photographs, the kid, I'm sure Arthur's just saying, why don't you try putting them into your, into your shirt like that? And he ends up with this amazing image. Um, you know, there's no model release. You know, he does not like talking to the parents. Right. We don't know who this kid is. Um, I always always wonder you know do any of these people as adults even know that they were uh, the subject of some really classic photographs by by arthur tress but 
you know, he creates this this image that's really striking and kind of haunting. Um, but it's it's all just kind of spontaneous play. Yeah. It's his Which, flood flood dream photograph, which is a yeah. an amazing, like virtuosic work by Arthur, is just by chance. I mean, he's driving down the coast, it's wintertime, he's just looking for like you know, weird um, places that are kind of boarded up for the winter. You know, he's just, oh, but he's open to whatever he finds. And then he just comes up across this strange scene of a, I don't know, a kind of ruin of a building of some sort of, it's basically a roof that's just kind of lying in the mud. And there's this old ferry boat sort of off in the distance. And they're just, again, two kids are just pl- horsing around, playing around. There's no parents. There's no nothing. And he, you know, you look at the contact sheets and you see him sort of directing these kids. And at one point he has one of the children peer out of the out of a hole in the roof. And he creates this in- incredible image, which um, you know, is just all a sort of stroke of luck in, in a way. Well, it is and it isn't. It is know? and it isn't, right? And and so what? Yeah, and and everything you just said, I'm like, you know, if we were, if this was a video presentation, and I'm shaking my head in like the the the, the way the times have changed, obviously, and a, a, an adult alone with children photographing in in all sorts of places, just as that you know, obviously things are very different now. Uh, I also think about the fact that, yes, like that particular photo of the boy popping out of the the roof with the ferry off in the the distance. So um, sort of out uh, surveying the scene, coming across something that has potential for an interesting photograph, not necessarily going there with the preconceived notion of that's what that final image is going to look like. Uh, Opening almost like, okay, well, here's a stage where maybe something can happen. And something uh, incredible does happen in that particular photo versus, you know, like a Gregory Crutzen kind of thing where like, uh, you know, I can construct every detail of a scene and put somebody into it, uh, you know, and then maybe that's a statement on the times as well uh, that, you know, like having a preconception of what the image is going to look like and, and creating it from scratch. But to me, the, the, the thing that, is interesting about Arthur's work time and time again, as you described, like whether he's like, Oh, well, you know, it may be cool if, you know, I'm just going to go out with these roots and see, see what happens. Uh, You still got to deliver. I mean, the, the photos stand on artistic ground, regardless of, how he got and nothing this is what's amazing to me about looking at the work it doesn't feel contrived to me at all you know another another favorite example of this kind of thing is the bride and groom Mm. which is again like with um like the photograph we just discussed it's it's probably one of arthur's better known works it's been reproduced quite a bit it's been in different shows it's it's stefan brecht um, in a in a church in a sort of ruined church in I think Greenwich Village. So you know Arthur was a fan of avant-garde theater, and Brecht was in a play, and this was actually his costume. Mm. 
wearing half, he's half man, half woman. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, this was a church that had had a fire. So basically, you know, it had burned. It was a pile of rubble. And I'm sure surrounded by caution tape and everything else. But Arthur, you know, gets wrecked to go into the church and stand there in the in the nave and in, in this incredibly in this incredible set and ruined space and creates this amazing image so he, he's just again sort of working with what's what's there um <laughs> and it's it's masterful and it's elaborate but it's not you know it's not so premeditated like it's a, there's a lot of serendipity um you know i've i've seen arthur in action and when you meet arthur tress he's a very meek kind of character mm. soft spoken not non-threatening um but when he photographs you he's pretty aggressive he's very you know he gets people he gets people to do things like whatever he wants them to do like yeah. he just has a of doing that and this is what Dwayne Michaels writes about in his little note in the theater of the mind, which is, you know, if Arthur comes to photograph you, you know, beware, like he will, he will pull your secrets out. He will have, you know, he'll have you put your mother in a wheelbarrow and you'll, you'll just do that. Like, <laughs> and it's really true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But uh, that's, that's, you know, that's the way he is. And you'll see in, you know, in some of the theater of the mind photographs in particular, you know, there's some disturbing things going on there. Yeah. You know, scenes of staged domestic violence. Like we, you know, we have to put a trigger warning in the gallery for people because these are, these are difficult images for, for some people and right. you know, explain like what, what is going on here? Why is he doing this? And what's the purpose, but also assure people that this is just all, staged play acting right yeah and even the the what i know about the dream collector is apparently the 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 subjects of those photos were kids who shared different dreams that they had and then they were reenacting them is that correct or well that wrong (laughs) well you you have it wrong but that but for it's understandable and and that's related to these you know, these mythologies of Arthur Tress, there are these mythologies around Arthur, which, you know, I, I felt it was very important that we do a really scholarly book and really set the record straight. Because although there's there's a fair number of books about Arthur, as I mentioned, there are all kinds of errors, um, which he either perpetuated or just never bothered to, to correct. And so I so is that is that is my uh my confusion there due to something that is that a backstory that he created for it or just somebody attached to that work or yeah it it is because you know the photo book the dream collector which was his first real breakthrough photo book it was published by or was co-published by a man named peter schultz who ran photo researchers inc which was a stock agency and a stock photo agency in new york which carried arthur's work and Peter, who was quite a brilliant and fascinating person in his own right, recognized the potential to create a photo book. But he also felt that it needed to have a text. So he hired a writer, a man named John Minahan, to write a text. So it's not just pure photographs like 
you know, The Shadow, for example, which is mm-hmm. like a graphic novel. So there, there's a text, there's an introduction where John Minahan describes a, a sort of interview he's doing with Arthur. And then there are these captions. Um, Arthur shared the an early manuscript with me, which has much longer captions, which is quite interesting. In the final book, the captions are rather pithy. Um, but but Minahan, you know, conveys this story that Arthur is going around with a tape recorder, interviewing kids, asking them to relate their dreams and their nightmares, and then they're staging them for the camera. But I asked Arthur about this early on, and he said, "Oh no, I never had a I never had a tape recorder. None of that's true at all." Um, so it it again, it was all pretty much all improvised. However, if you you know, Arthur did get involved with uh, a man named Richard Lewis, who was an, an, a famous educator um, and worked with lots of kids and staged a series of, I think they called them dream workshops in some of the public schools in New York and invited Arthur to to assist and participate with his camera. Um, and if you look in Arthur's notebooks from the period, you do find that there are some indications of like kids describing dreams that they're having, but that's not really how that book was done. Mm-hmm. It was really a kind of, um, you know, fiction. Um, but one of my f- favorite anecdotes, one of the funniest things that comes out of all of this is that apparently, um, <laughs> and rather unbelievably, Dick Clark productions, you know, American Grant, American Grandstand, Grandstand, Clark. Grandstand yeah. Um, he he his company um I guess got a copy of the Dream Collector and thought, well, this would be a great idea for um a TV special, uh, which was described as a kind of it was a special about a guy who goes around with a tape recorder interviewing kids and staging their dreams, but it's a musical. So there are all these musical numbers. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like the craziest thing. And Arthur said that they actually got into like negotiations about this, but because Peter Schultz was very sort of concerned about copyright issues and was quite sort of controlling of all of this, he he basically put the kibosh on it. And Arthur told me all these years later that he was kind of difficult because he thought, you know, I might actually make some money from this thing and they were going to cast me in it too. So it just never happened. <laughs> wow. It was but the whole thing is a is a kind of story that, that yeah yeah really- and 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 again going back to something I was uh, mentioning earlier it doesn't it it, it doesn't uh, d- detract from the, the the strength of the imagery at all really and, and the fact that there you know that's that kind of you know like fabricated story for it really you know to me that's not necessarily relevant to to appreciating the work and it also makes me think about like as you were describing his process um i I, i've looked at the contact sheet that diane arbus of the the boy in central park with the hand grenade and when you see that photograph it independent of of the contact sheet and you think it's like this you know like this traumatic terrorized child or you know whatever it represents uh you know subconsciously or whatever but then you look at the contact sheet and she was directing that kid and there's like he's goofing around in other pictures right before it with his like overalls and and it it, to and so and that to me it's you know it doesn't 
change to the how you know the strength of that in individual image but uh you know just that and i I think that's a just sort of a you know you it goes with the medium that what's on that one particular frame at that particular time um there's lots of things that are going on before and after or just outside the frame that you know maybe we don't know that although you've seen all the contact sheets so yeah (laughs) Which, which again, I think is just an amazing treat. Uh, well, I, we've been talking for a while, and I know you you've, you you have some time uh, limits. But uh, so, just to wrap things up, why don't you just give a pitch for the show? And and because uh, uh, as as far as people who um, might want to go see it, yeah. So our our exhibition, um, Arthur Tress Rambles, Dreams and Shadows, is up until February eighteenth. So it um, will, it, you know, we're open during the holidays. It's a, it's a great time to come up to the Getty Center here in Los Angeles. Um, we also have this catalog that, that I wrote and two of my colleagues in the Getty's Department of Photographs, Paul Martineau and Maisie Harris, contributed to it as well. We're really proud of the book. And they even did a limited edition poster of Flood Dream. Mm. Uh, Arthur signed the night of the opening. I think this is an edition of 100 it's a nice inkjet print, very beautiful, and mm. and they have like a, a an edition signed edition of that, which would make a great Christmas gift. Yeah, loving that. But yeah, we're we're thrilled um, that the show is is up for a couple more months, and hoping to you know to uh, to do some more programming. and And I'm really pleased that you gave me this chance to talk about it and share it with your listeners. So, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for joining me. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to get my hands on a, uh, on a copy of the, the catalog because it's, I, I mean, it just, it looks fantastic and I definitely want that on my bookshelf. Well, Jim, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a really enjoyable conversation for me and I really appreciate, uh, not only you taking the time out, but also, uh, feel like a, I'm just scratching the surface on, on, on the work of Arthur Tress. So uh, thank you again. It's, it's my pleasure. So there you go, folks. My conversation with Jim Gans of the Getty Center, discussing the life and the work of Arthur Tress. Uh, I hope this discussion has piqued your interest uh, to check out the work of Arthur And I will definitely share links not only to the Getty Center uh, information and and photographs from that show, but also other places where you can uh, check out Arthur's body of work. And I'm very excited. uh, After this conversation, I actually made arrangements to head out to Los Angeles in the next couple of weeks and go see the show in person. Uh, I would encourage anyone who is in the area close enough to travel to go see the show. Um, As Jim mentioned, it is up until February 18th, and I hope you get a chance to see it. I'm really looking forward to seeing those photographs in person myself. Um, So that's it for today's topic, the work of Arthur Tress. Uh, I would like to just thank everybody uh, who's come on board this season as a new listener and also, of course, longtime listeners as well. Uh, This episode will bring us to the end of the year, but rest assured, I've got lots of good ideas and topics 
uh, lined up for the remainder of this season, and I hope you join me and stay along for the ride for those. Uh, lastly, um, if you're interested in other episodes or if you have questions or comments, you can always go to my website, which is righteyedominantpodcast.com. Scroll all the way down to the bottom. You can leave me a comment or a question or just check out the whole roster of episodes there as well. So that's it for now. Again, thank you for listening. This has been the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I've been your host, Nick Toro Jr. And until next time, stay well. This podcast has been a production of RightEyeDominant.art. The music for today's episode is brought to you by Comic Project and Yazar.